0: Oh, it's really good to be, to be back. As uh, Selmer mentioned, we do uh, spend most of our time in Abbotsford. And I got the call from Mel quite a while ago. He asked us, is there a chance that you'll be in Edmonton on the 18th of August? And then he made it very clear that he wasn't covering my travel. And I said, Mel, if I get a $9 swoop fight, will you co- reconsider? And he didn't flinch. So I guess I'm here with great personal sacrifice <laughs> and probably buying my own lunch. But before you have the slightest pang of sympathy, not uh, that's not all true. Uh, we were coming here anyway, and uh, I just stayed a little longer and just really glad to be here. He did mention as well, though, that there was uh, an interesting reason why he wanted me to come on this particular day, and that's because... Uh, we're having a speaker here, and he said in the tradition service and in the West uh, venue, they're having uh, another service, so it's not being televised. And I sometimes no, quite often my mind goes in weird places, and I'm thinking, you know, why would he want me here on that Sunday when it's not being televised? Uh, You know, who do we know that looks okay from a distance, but We're not going to project his face on a big screen where you know it it really is more visible and i was reminded of a little ditty i heard a long time ago some of you may have heard it i know my face ain't no star but i don't mind it for i'm behind it it's the folks out front that get the jar (laughs) when i heard that the uh, the uh, theme was a weather report and knowing that we live in abbotsford i I almost went into a bit of a panic mode there because I know that weather is a big issue between the two places as to where we've lived now for a year. And, and so I was really feeling kind of uncomfortable about what to say about weather. I mean, there are a number of things I'd like to say. You know, I, I really wanted to say that I golfed last year in November and December and January and... I really wanted to say that on Christmas Day as a family with uh, my daughter and her husband and the kids, we went to the beach and some of the kids were wearing shorts for the afternoon as we were there. But I thought, you know, I really better not say that. That's probably not going to go over well, so I, I chose not to say that. <laughs> what I did decide was to only work on my message when it rained. Uh, I didn't get much done before I came to Edmonton. But I finished it rather quickly when I when I got here. <laughs> Several months ago, uh, Sue and I were visiting a church, and I heard a message that that really challenged me. And as a preacher, we always are are looking for ways that if we were to preach in that same passage, that we would uh, we would do it and how we would present it. And I thought, that's a passage I I really want to do some work on. I I may want to go in a little different direction than the individual that I heard. Powerful message, and it really touched my life. But when I'm giving it, I thought, I I just want to go a, a little different direction. The passage was Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. And the emphasis that I want to make is on the four individuals that are a part of this particular passage. There's, of course, Paul. There's Lydia. There's the demon-possessed slave girl. And there's the jailer. Now, there are a lot of other individuals who are involved in the passage as well, like Paul came with Timothy and with Silas. We picked up Timothy at the beginning of the chapter we read. Uh, The slave girl had her owners, and, and all of them had their entourage around them, but it's the four individuals, all with unique backgrounds, all coming from special places that I want to relate to, three of them residents of the area one of them, a visitor. It's really a story how a new church is planted or a church that was struggling is enhanced with new people. Church is going to be made up of individuals who come from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of circumstances. It's a lengthy passage, but I want to read it all for us. And as I'm reading it, I want you to look at two questions as we look at the individuals we're going through. What's unique about each person? What is it about them that really stands out? How is it then that Paul's approach to these people differed? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Use your phone or whatever you use. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, the passage is on page 898. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 40. We read, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and a leading city of that of the district of Macedonia, And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went out to side the city gate where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. To respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to come to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell, fastened their seats, their feet in the stocks. About midnight... "'Don't harm yourself. "'We are all here.' "'The jailer called for lights, rushed in, "'fell trembling before Paul and Silas. "'He brought them out and asked, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' "'They replied, "'Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, "'you and your household.' "'Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him "'and to all the others in the house.' At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out the officers reported this to the magistrates and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens they were alarmed they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison requesting them to leave the city after Paul and Silas came out of the prison they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them then they left. What a story. Four players, three residents, one visitors. Let's look at how the visitor impacted the residents of that city. We see Lydia, first of all. Here's what we know about her. We know that Lydia was from Thyatira, we're not sure if that's where she lived for, uh, most of her life now, or whether that's the area that she was from, and now she lived in Philadelphia, and in, 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 now she lived where she was. We're told that she was a seller of purple. You know, in coming from an area, somebody asks me where I'm from. I might say if I detect in their question, they're looking for my roots. I might say Wetasquin or I was born in Killam, I might say. Uh, But that's not where I live now. I live now in Abbotsford. And I think that's where Lydia was now saying she was a, a resident of Philippi, but had come from Thyatira. We also know that she was a businesswoman, a very successful one a seller of purple relating to royalty. Thyatira, was, uh, where she was from originally, was known for its purple dyes. Uh, Lydia had obviously done very well as a seller of purple. She may have sold dyed linen cloths as well, but it was the dye itself that had made her successful. One writer said, she was not a street person, kind of salesperson, didn't set up a booth on the street. Rather, she sold in her own particular place and had done very well. She was respected in the community. We also know from the text that she was a worshiper of God. The account tells us that when Paul and Silas, and and probably Timothy was still with them at this point, went to the river to pray, uh, Must have been a sunny day that way. That day, you know, we'll get the weather in here somehow. And on that sunny day at the river, they met these women praying. The text tells us it was a place of prayer. Regularly, they came there. So when Paul came, he knew that there would be people there praying. It's here that he met Lydia. It appears and probably happened often with Paul, that when Paul arrived, he took control of the meeting. He began speaking, he began sharing, and it's here that we find a very interesting, interesting thing. Paul's conversation, his interaction at this meeting, is clearly about a person's personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What Paul discovered as he met Lydia, was that Lydia was a worshiper of God but not a believer in God. Lydia was a person who knew God but she didn't know him. She understood him but she hadn't believed in him. What Paul shared with her was with such impact that she realized her situation And she submitted herself and became a believer in Jesus Christ. The text says that Lydia and her household were obedient and were baptized. Now let's make some observations about Paul as he related in this situation. Paul was faithful to his calling. He simply did what he was called to do, and that was to share Christ. The other thing Paul did, which I find really fascinating, is that Paul did not make any assumptions. He didn't assume that everyone at that meeting was a believer. After all, they were at a prayer meeting, and that would be the natural assumption, but Paul didn't make that assumption. He shared Christ as he had been called to do. Brought me back to my seminary days back in Portland, Oregon, one morning in chapel, and we had chapel, as I recall, three times a week, one of our classmates was asked to stand and give us testimony. We're in our second year of classes. To enter seminary, we all had given a personal testimony. We'd all told our background, and, and, and being in a graduate school, it was expected to be of a certain caliber in which we would do it. So my friend, one of my classmates, got up to share his testimony. His name was Bill, and here's what he said. He said, last week, I gave my heart to Jesus Christ. He said, I'd been in seminary for a year and a half, but I had never, ever put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. There was a deathly silence in our chapel for a few moments. And then when people realized the significance of what had happened, there was cheering and clapping and, and, and shouting up to Bill words of encouragement. I'd been in a preaching class where Bill had shared, where Bill had preached. We all knew what he had said, But he discovered he had never believed. Could it be, could it be that there are those even in church this morning who have been in church all your lives, worked in programs, led youth programs, served on the church board, but have never had a personal relationship with God? Wouldn't it be sad no, horrible, horrible. To stand before God when He asks the question, Why should I let you into my heaven? To answer with a statement that says, All my friends know I'm a Christian. I've been a part of church all my life. But only to hear our Lord say, Depart from me. I never knew you. That would have been Lydia's experience. If she hadn't humbled herself and believed what Paul had said. The second person we meet is the slave girl, the demonic possessed slave girl. Now when I read this part of the text as I was going through it many, many times, I discovered that it's very easy to stray from what the text is really saying and focus on the wrong thing. It's my belief in the number of times that I've read this particular passage that it's really not about the slave girl. It's really not. She's here, and we know some things about her. We know that she was demon-possessed. We know that through the demon she could predict the future, probably negative aspects of the future, but she could see some things in the future. We know that she made her owners very wealthy by her ability. We know from what she did to Paul and and the others as they were sharing, we know that she was very persistent. We also know that she knew some truths. There are some truths that she did know. I mean, her statement in the text of what Paul and Silas were doing was right on. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's spot on. That's right on. As a side note, I asked, why would she be persistently doing that? I mean, why would she, as a demon-possessed girl, be wanting to announce so regularly what Paul and Silas were doing? My conclusion is that by a a, a demon-possessed girl making a statement like that likely undermines the credibility of what Paul and Silas are doing. I mean, why should we believe this crazy girl in what she's saying and what she's doing? So I, I, I suspect it was the devil's ploy to be a negative impact on what Paul was doing no evidence in her life when Paul did what he did when he said be gone from her in the name of Jesus Christ in the authority of God be gone Paul doesn't relate to her again no evidence that he witnessed to her no evidence of a life-changing decision she was simply a demon-possessed girl who made money for her owners. So I think what this passage is really about is not the demon-possessed girl, but rather the power and supreme authority of God. Paul simply said, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, and the demon left. Now when we think of the whole passage... We saw the convicting power of God in the life of a person who thought she believed, Lydia. We here see the power of the name of Jesus over one of Satan's emissaries, a demon. The power of God is supreme. In a bit, we're going to see the power of God, of the living God, over the evilest government of that time, The evilest government one could think of using the force of nature that he controls. This is about God's power and God's authority. Paul was in the midst of proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. And this demonstrates in the most powerful way that God is in control and he will prevail. Now the men, the owners of the slave girl, were so angry, the text tells us, that they seized Paul and Silas, brought them before the magistrates of the court, accusing them of throwing the city into an uproar by teaching things contrary to what the Romans were supposed to believe, what the Romans saw as lawful. Now, here's a question. Why didn't they do this before the slave girls lost her powers? Paul and Silas had been there many days, and they did nothing. But the moment they lost something, now things are different. Isn't it interesting how differently we act? how differently we act when our little world has been affected. Life can go on as it has been, but when it affects me, then I get involved. Even the crowd, who undoubtedly liked being told the future, joined in, and so did the magistrates but I also had another question that was perplexing me in this passage. We've read the text, so we know what's coming. We know about the imprisonment. We know about the stocks that they're going to be in. We know about the singing. We know about the earthquake. We know about the resultant conversion of the jailer. So my question relates to at the end of the story, when the officers of the court come and tell Paul that he can go now, Paul states that very powerful statement at the end of the story. They beat us publicly without trial, even though we're Roman citizens. They threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Why did Paul wait till the end of the story to tell them who he was? Why did he not say it back at the trial? Back at the trial, it would have made a difference on them being flogged, on their imprisonment, and all of the things that happened to them. Why did he wait until the very end? We're not told, but here's what I think. This passage, as I've said, is really about the sovereignty and the power of God and what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. God knows that he wanted Paul to experience jail time for the purpose of reaching the jailer and his family and beyond. And I really believe that Paul was shielded from being able to remember that statement when he was before the magistrates because God had a greater and more significant person. For him to reach and that was the jailer he waited until the end and that introduces us to the third person the jailer what do I you know about him well we know that he was quite an individual we know that he was legalistic and loyal to the end we know that if you gave him a job to do he would do it and he would take it to the next level So when the jailer got the men, they'd already been flogged and beaten with a rod. So they were in a weakened state. The magistrate had ordered that, ordered that they'd be stripped and beaten. Jailer gets them, puts their feet in stocks, binds them, puts them in the inner cell. The jailer saying to himself, these men are not getting away on my watch. Robertson, a commentator, describes the Roman prison this way. The Roman public prison had a vestibule, an outer prison, and behind this, in the inner is the inner prison, a veritable dungeon. no light, no air, save what could, go, what could come through the door. Robertson goes on to say that their feet would be shackled in a wooden frame in such a way that they would be stretched far apart. No light, no air, no comfort. So here's the question. How is it that Paul and Silas are so relaxed and so at peace in the midst of this most horrible, terrible prison situation, how is it that they can lift their inner spirits to pray and to sing hymns in such a way that the other prisoners are drawn in? Let me offer an explanation. A little church we go to, one of the speakers used this, and I think he got it from somewhere else too, and I don't know where. But he said, imagine that we picture life as two stories, an upper story and a lower story. On the upper story is God. Now, we know God is everywhere. But in the illustration, picture him in the upper story. We live on the bottom story. We live on the bottom level. God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the circumstances that we face and he knows the end result. He knows the why, and he knows the what that he desires as the end result. On our level, on our story, we only see what he allows us to see. Now, the Scripture is very, very clear that he allows us to see everything we need to live a life honoring Him, to live a life in perfect surrender to Him. We see everything we need, not everything we want, but everything we need. He then tells us to believe Him for the rest. On the upper story, He's got it in control. On the lower story, we're to live in a way that acknowledges that He is in control. So Paul and Silas, walking on the lower story, have this unencumbered faith that the God walking on the upper story knows exactly what he's doing. Their trust is not controlled by thoughts of how wrong this is, by thoughts of how we deserve better, We're servants of the holy God by thoughts that say, this is not what we were called to do, but rather their trust is in God. A circumstance as rotten as being in stocks in this dark, filthy, damp prison is not enough to alter our walk of faith in God. We will walk in peace in Him. Sue and I have been walking through a circumstance in our life where it's easy to question God. Why? This shouldn't be. It's fair to say that that our faith has been tested. Not talking about the fact that our house hasn't sold yet. That's just a piece of real estate. That's just wood and brick. Talking about our son's rejection of God. His turning of his back to God. Brad was a classmate of Sid Coop who's preaching in the other venue. He was a youth pastor for a period of time, Bible school graduate. Can we trust God's promises or can't we? We're walking on the lower story. He's on the top. And we have decided that we can and we will. I do admit that we wish sometimes there's a few more stairways of information coming down so we knew a little bit more of what's going to happen. But our trust is in God. God is in charge. Now, the text tells us that about midnight, there was a violent earthquake that shook the prison to its very foundations. The doors opened, the chains fell off, the stocks were free from their feet. What a miracle, an absolute miracle. But you know, there's another miracle that I've never heard talked about, and that's the miracle that not one rock, not one brick, not one beam in such a violent storm fell on any of the prisoners or on the prison guard. It is God-ordained selective destruction. god is truly in charge. So as a result, the jailer is in total disarray, going from wanting to commit suicide, put his sword in his chest, to asking, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul gave him a simple answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the text says, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him. Paul spoke the word of the Lord to him. And then the jailer said, come to my house for a meal. And he was baptized. Can you imagine phoning your wife in the middle of the night, getting out your cell phone and telling her, I'm bringing somebody home for a meal right now. Can you you have something ready? Oh, really, she says, Who? Well, you see, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a long story, but, uh, but simply it's that these guys were in my jail. I had them locked up in stocks in the inner cell. We, we had an earthquake. They became free, and, and now I believe in their God, and, and I'm bringing them home. And, oh, yeah, make sure that the water trough is full too because we're going to have a baptism, and, and we're all going to get right with God. Wow. The life-changing power of God. You see, the story of Lydia, the story of the demon-possessed girl, the story of the jailer are not to point to their lives, but to point to the lives of the sovereign, all-powerful God who is not hindered in any way by circumstances or situations. He is in charge. So as a couple of takeaways, let me first of all say, Never forget that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Let me tell you what I know about you. I don't know all of you, but I know this about you. I know that right now you are walking through a circumstance. It's a circumstance where you have the choice to trust God or to not trust God. It's a circumstance where it maybe takes all the faith, all, the, all, all the, the strength that you can muster to trust, and you're tempted to ask in the midst of the circumstance, is this really worth it? It all points to the fact that God is sovereign, and He is in charge, and we can trust Him. Upper story, lower story. We know what we need to know. He does what he needs to do. And then the second thing that really ties to this is that life is full of interesting choices. Go back to that first prayer meeting with Paul. Had that been me at the prayer meeting, I would have made the assumption, these people are believers. I'm going to teach them about a deeper walk with God. Paul didn't assume that. He didn't assume that just because it was a prayer meeting that all were believers in God. Lydia was deeply grateful for that decision by Paul. He just shared the gospel, and the Lord took care of the rest. Maybe that you have a choice that you need to make this morning. You might be here this morning as a Lydia, as a Lydia, might be that everyone believes you are a believer, but in your heart you know differently. You have to decide. As my friend Bill told me later that he had to decide, does pride win or does surrender win? Lydia knew She wasn't a believer when Paul shared that message. Let me conclude by saying it might be that in the circumstance that you are walking through, you're having trouble accepting what God is doing or allowing to happen. You're in jail. You're angry. You're discontent. Are you willing to surrender? whatever that issue is, to the sovereign Lord and walk in complete confidence with him. Or it may be that you're here this morning having never responded to what Paul told the jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It may be that you've never had the opportunity or it may be that you've put it off doesn't matter. John wrote later that we have the Word of God so that we might know that we have eternal life. And so by believing, we can answer the question to the Lord when He asks, why should I let you into my heaven with the statement, I have believed in your Son, the Lord Jesus? That's a decision that you need to make or one of those decisions Why not talk to someone after the service, maybe Pastor Rick or Pastor Mel or Dave, or if you wish, talk to me. Seal your decision with a conversation with someone that can help you. The decision belongs to you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments we could spend around your word. Thank you, Lord, for the example of Paul. Thank you for the work that you did in the lives of Lydia, the jailer, and really in the life of the slave girl and being freed from the power of the the demon. Don't know if she trusted you. But thank you, Lord, that your power is still the same today. And Lord, may it be that if in our hearts we are struggling with the decision to follow you, Grant the courage to obey, to respond in obedience, and we will praise you forever. For we prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.